as we begin Mark chapter 10, uh, we may have to note that uh, if you've been here the last three weeks particularly, you'll notice this, that this is the third time in three weeks in our study so far that Jesus is teaching on His death and His resurrection. And like His teaching on, on His death and resurrection, He always ties it into discipleship, and the teaching, like here, gets more and more explicit. In other words, every time He talks about His coming death and He talks about discipleship, He always unpacks it and gives it more specificity like we see right here. Now, I'm going to start in the middle of the chapter because that's where He actually talks about it, and then we'll kind of backtrack and finish up the whole thing. But let me read Mark chapter 10, starting at verse 32, as Jesus gives His third pronunciation of His coming death. Mark 10, 32, and they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. Now, that's the middle of the chapter, but as our chapter opens up, Jesus is continuing His conversation about the call to discipleship, and this time in chapter 10, He focuses in on really life's most fundamental areas of our discipleship, family and our possessions. It wraps up, chapter 10 wraps up with another call to humility and this beautiful picture of discipleship, and we'll look at all that one at a time. Now, before we jump into our study of Mark 10, I, I do have an open, uh, one opening thought especially if you're new to this series. Our series in Mark has really been kind of a flyover of this gospel with an emphasis on discipleship. So, while each section of chapter 10 is amazing, and there's a lot that we could talk about, and there's a lot in this chapter if you're familiar with it at all. The first 16 verses is zeroing in on marriage and family and the issue of divorce, and then we talk about for another 15 verses or so, possessions and wealth, and then true greatness and what servanthood is and humility, and then it ends with the healing of blind Bartimaeus. So, while each of these sections is absolutely worthy of its own Sunday sermon, its own Sunday, a study, because each of them brings out something for the Christian life, for our overview, we're going to be actually focusing on the connective tissue between each of these sections, showing how collectively they're bringing forward the the principles of discipleship, that each of these sections fleshes out more the practice of discipleship in their own particular ways. Now, the the reason that's important is This last section we're looking at turns out to be the last of really a three-part sermon series on really, we could call this the cost of discipleship. We've been calling it discipleship defined or things aren't what they seem in the very first one. But now that we've kind of come this far, I've realized, okay, these really are three parts of one message that Jesus has been unpacking since Mark chapter 8, verse 34 and 38, where He talks to the disciples probably most explicitly for the first time in this gospel, what it means to be a Christian, or, or, or to use the language of our text, what does it mean to be a disciple? And Jesus defined it in three amazing phrases that we've been trying to unpack, and that is deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow Him. 
Now, last week, we tried to give some practical definition to what does Jesus mean when He says, deny yourself, and now we, we kind of look at what does it mean to pick up your cross and follow Jesus with your life. Now, while each of these phrases has a very unique flavor to them, they all together really just communicate the same kind of primary message of the Christian faith. In other words, this is like Christianity 101, and that is this, that if you are a Christian, you, the, the most foundational thing that means is that you realize that your life is not your own, right? And we see this all through the New Testament. Paul talks about to the Roman Christians, if you're a note taker, write down Romans 14, verses 7 through 8. Paul says the same thing to the Corinthian Christians in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 15. Paul says the same thing to the churches in Galatia in, Gal- in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, that if you're going to understand what it means to be a Christian, the foundational thing, the first thing to realize is that your life is not your own. Now, now whether you want to put the emphasis on the things you need to stop doing as emphasized by Jesus saying, deny yourself, or the emphasis is on the things you need to start doing, which Jesus tried to bring out by saying, pick up your cross, or the emphasis is on who is the north star, who you will follow with your life, whether it's your own self, the world, the crowd, whatever it might be, as Jesus emphasizes by saying, follow me, they all capture the same concept. Your life's not yours. It has been bought and paid for at a price. Now, let's, let's just do this real quick, and this is one of those Sundays I think I'm going to go late. I, I just feel that that's going to be the case. Um, go with me to Romans. Let's, let's look at, instead of me just quoting you the passage, look at Romans chapter 14. This is, this is, um, this is as I said, Christianity 101. We've got to understand this. If, if you are a Christian or if you're thinking about the claims of Christ, you need to understand uh, what those claims are. Look at Romans 14, verse 7. Paul says, For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. If we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. Now now look at what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, just a few pages to the right, verse 15, and this is what Paul says about Christ. And He, Jesus, died for all. Why? That those who live might no longer live for themselves but for him who for their sake died and was raised again. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, Paul says it. This is this anthem of his life. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me and the life I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The Christian life is not our own. Jesus has been trying to say that to his disciples time and time again. And he says, pick up your cross, deny yourself, pick up your cross, follow after me. And so, in our study of Mark, it's intentionally been kind of an overview, but because we want to see the forest and the trees, we're flying over the themes of discipleship so that we have a broad foundation. And as you know, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the synoptic gospels. We've taught you that word. It means things that are seen together, right? Because many of the events they record are the same events, but from a different perspective. So, by studying one of them kind of at this broad level, you understand the broad themes, now you have what it takes to dive really deep into individual sections of it without losing the main themes on top. And that's how we've been approaching this gospel. 
And so while I know, as we look at Mark chapter 10, if you've read, read ahead, and I always encourage you, that's why on a Sunday morning, if you look at the bulletin, we always tell you the passage of Scripture next week so that I hope you read that or at least think about it so that you come with questions or categories of thought on a Sunday morning. If you've done that, you might be thinking, man, I really hope we go deep into this issue of marriage and divorce or possessions or, or, you know, one of these stories. And the reality is, because we're trying to cover all of it, but more importantly, show you the connective tissue of how all these areas, our family, our possessions, our, our, our pride, our issues of discipleship, we're not going to spend too much time in any one section of them. So, just so you're not too disappointed, that, that's the idea here. We want to show how marriage, how divorce, how possessions, how our pride are a part of our discipleship, right? And then we're going to conclude, as I said, with this beautiful picture of discipleship. So, let's look at that one at a time. So, we're going to look at Mark chapter 10, discipleship defined, family and possessions. Let me read to you verses 2 through 9 of Mark 10. And Pharisees came up to Jesus, and in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Jesus answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send the woman away. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Now, the parallel account of this interaction in Matthew chapter 19, verse 3, really helps us see what the real issue is, what's the nub of the argument going on here. And if you were to look at Matthew 19, 3, you would see that Matthew included the phrase so important that Mark omitted because he's trying to just get to the issue at hand. Matthew includes the phrase of the Pharisees saying, can we divorce a woman, can a man divorce his wife for any reason, for any reason? Now, why would they ask Jesus that question? Can a man divorce his wife for any reason at all? Now, it might be surprising to hear that divorce was actually very, a very common thing in Jesus' time. I think, I think we always hear things that divorce is, is now the scourge of our society. The truth of the matter is it's, been the scourge of our, it's always been the scourge of society because the human heart never changes. Divorce was actually a very common thing in their day. In fact, a liberal school of the Jewish thought back then, the school of Hillel, who was a Pharisee at the time, he taught that a man could divorce his wife if the woman spoiled dinner enough times. Deuteronomy 24.1, when a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he can write her, he write her a certificate of divorce. And after all, it is indecent to keep ruining dinner. I'm not making this stuff up. Rabbi Akiba taught, based on Deuteronomy 24, but a different take on it, based on if a, man finds, if a wife finds no favor in his eyes, he took that to mean if he finds another woman more attractive, he may then divorce her because she no longer finds favor in his eyes. See, these guys needed my class, Pillars of Truth, to interpret the Bible, right? This is, this is craziness. Now, there were people who fought against this, uh, school, uh, the school of Gamaliel, 
who, who is a, a Pharisee who taught and trained, by the way, a young Pharisee named Saul, right, who later became Paul, he had a conservative view, said you cannot divorce a woman for any reason, right? But this is to show you the absurdity of that society. And if we're going to be honest, we know of people who get divorced for reasons just as absurd, right? They may not go to Deuteronomy 24 to point that out, but people have lowered the standard, lowered God's view on marriage, and we see that happening here. And now, I love Jesus. He cuts through all the moral gymnastics, and He gets to the true issue. And His comments are just as true as today. Look at verse 5. What does He say? He says, why did Moses allow this? Because uh, Moses allowed this because of the hardness of your hearts. Now, we, we can't unpack it all in its entirety, but what God intended as a mercy for the woman, man has used as an excuse. I'm not, I'm not saying man as in just women are great and men are rotten. I'm just saying man in general. What, what God intended as a mercy in a patriarchal society where dowry was important, it, the, the, a woman needed a certificate of divorce to, 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 to signify that she could, in fact, get married. She could signify that she wasn't defiled in certain ways. So God uh, gave opportunity for her protection. Okay? We're not going to get into the, the Torah code here. I'm just simply pointing out that what God recognizes a mercy, people use as an excuse, and they corrupt God's original design, which Jesus goes right back to the very foundation of creation. God, God's design for marriage was that it would be a permanent bond in this life. And, and years ago, we did a conference on human sexuality, and I gave a presentation on how marriage is a display of the very character and being of God. We don't have time to get into that today. But if you want to see that, it's on our website. The point simply is their hearts were hardened, and they were playing interpretive gymnastics to do what they wanted to do. And Jesus says that's not what's going on. God's intention from the beginning was because man was to image God, man being male and female. It was always to be this permanent bond in this life, to be a reflection of His being and His character. So important, so important is the marital bond. Let me say that again. So important that it even transcends the bond between parent and child. How shocking to a culture that was very strong on family units. Look at verse 7 of chapter 10. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Let me make a, make a comment on this and then just tie this into uh, discipleship. One of the joys that Lori and I share at this church together is doing a lot of premarital counseling. Uh, it seems like since February of 2015 when we got here, that's just kind of what we do. We're just a, a, a ongoing premarital counseling. This afternoon, we have a couple coming over, and we're doing premarital counseling. One of our primary goals in counseling couples, whether young or old, about to get married, is to help them understand God's purposes for marriage, which is not primarily to make you happy, fulfilled, or give you some social rank or trophy relationship to show off to the world. But God's primary purposes in marriage is to make you holy, generous, kind, giving, to make you like Jesus Christ. Now, thankfully, our young people seem to get on board with that really quick, and they're, they're on page. But Lori and I have done some counseling 
where it's like they're like deer in headlights, right? They have no idea that the Bible actually believes that marriage serves a purpose beyond their own personal satisfaction. And so we usually recommend one of three books for our, 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 our people getting counseling. The Meaning of Marriage, What Did You Expect? That's always great. But I love this one. We love this one, When Sinners Say I Do. Because the conversation usually goes like this, and, and usually we play good cop, bad cop. We don't intend to, but I, I kind of really have to drive this point home, and Lori has to remind me that marriage is a good thing. But I say, hey, you realize, you, you realize you're a sinner, right? And they go, yeah. And you realize you're a sinner, right? And she'll say, yeah. And I say, you realize you are intentionally binding yourselves to a, a permanent relationship to be with another sinner. Yeah. And you realize when you come together in that wonderful marital union, she's going to make more sinners, and all of them are going to be running around in your house. And then they start looking, and that's where Lori's like, Rick, it's also the grace of life, remember? But I, this is what's going on. So if you think that your marriage is this like white picket fence, it's going to be a castle for you, you're wrong. It's like a full-blown cage fight, okay? <laughs> you need a savior. That's why you need a Savior, because of two sinners coming together in this bond. You need a Savior or you will not get through. And I know that's not romantic. I know that's not what Hollywood… I know, I know that just like kind of kills the, mm, the drive for marriage. But for those of you who are married, the reason you're laughing is you know that's true. And it's only when you come to grips with that can all the other stuff flow, but it doesn't work the other direction. So the question in our day and age of weak commitment and casual divorce is whether we as Christians will hear the unique call of Christ in our discipleship, in our marriages. This is what James Edward says in his commentary on Mark, in marriage as in other areas to which the call of Jesus applies, will we seek relief in what is permitted or commit ourselves to what is intended? by God and commanded by Christ. Will we fall away in trouble and difficulty? And then he, he references, remember the parable of the sower, of the seeds being sown, and, and one grew up really quick, but when the difficulties came, it died. He says, will, will we fall away or follow Jesus in the costly journey of discipleship, even in marriage? Last point is this, friends, marriage is not easy. You know that. It's like exercise. Exercise is not easy either. It's in the very push and strain that it makes you better. And so, we, we, we must move on. The, the reality is Jesus understands that in our marriages, that is where our discipleship shows out as clear as day anywhere else. Now, now Mark inserts this little interaction, in, starting in verse 13, of children in verses 13 to 15. And, and what I want to do is I want you to dial in because I need to to make this work, this interaction in 13 and 15 is the pivot point that binds this teaching on marriage and this teaching on wealth and highlights a point based on these children, okay? So in order to do that, I need to set this up, so I need you to dial in here. This interaction with children are teaching two simultaneous points based on these two, the marriage and the wealth that's coming in verses 17 to 31. First is to make the point of our absolute dependency on God in our marital relationships and in the, the, the use of our possessions and wealth, okay? 
Secondly, based on these children, it's to show how this dependency relates entirely into getting into the kingdom of God. Okay, I've just laid that out. So the children serve as a pivot point to teach two things, our absolute need to be dependent upon God because we do not have the resources in our own self as shown in marriages and its difficulty and the use of our wealth, and it shows how that dependency determines our entrance into the kingdom. So with that set up, let me read to you verses 13 to 23. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them, But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go. Sell all that you have and give it to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Now, so on the one hand, we have this narrative about marriage and divorce, verses 1 through 12. And on the other hand, we have this narrative about our possessions, verses 17 to 22. And in between, we have this narrative about children, verses 13 to 16. And notice how the narrative about the wealthy man and children are both about getting into the kingdom of God. Did you see that there? Verse 14, for to such belong the kingdom of God. And the very end of verse 23, how hard it is for a man of wealth to enter the kingdom of God. What makes this even more shocking to the disciples, to the original readers, see, we're kind of used to this so much now, but what makes this even more shocking is that children, they can get into the kingdom, but the rich man cannot, who by their standards, by their understanding, God blessed you. Your, Your wealth was a sign of God's blessing upon how you lived rightly, and children can get in, but the rich man cannot. They can't figure out what is going on here. And that shouldn't surprise us, right? Because what was going all the way back to Mark 8 from a couple weeks ago, what did Jesus say Peter's problem was when Peter rebuked Jesus and then Jesus had to set him right? Peter, your mind, it is on the things of man, and it's not on the things of God. And Peter was representative of all the disciples. They were only thinking of life through the way they understood life, and they did not understand the way God approaches everything, and they were just having their minds blown. Remember, children are not, were not in this time period, a symbol of innocence, purity, or sincerity. If that's what this text was teaching us, if that's what Jesus meant, you need to be like a child to get into the kingdom of God. Well, that's a hopeless gospel message right there, isn't it? If that's the message of this text, we all got to be as innocent and pure as children, well, then we're, we're, we're jacked, right? 
But, but how often we look at it, that's what Jesus is saying. That's not what He's saying. Children were not a symbol of those things. Children were representative of those in society who have no claim, no clout, no credit. They were powerless. They were small and totally at the mercy of others. Whatever a child receives, they receive purely on the basis of someone's mercy and grace and because of their neediness. That's what children were. The rich man, by contrast, had wealth, had power, had riches, so much so that it was clear that he couldn't open his hands and receive what Christ was giving him. Did you notice verse 21? Jesus was saying, let's make an exchange. I'll give you me. You get rid of all this stuff. That's what he's basically saying. How many times in the gospel did Jesus actually, other than his immediate 12, did he tell people, I want you to follow me? Most times he says, just go your way. But here he came to this rich man because he loved him, right? He says, here's the exchange. You get rid of this stuff, and you get me instead. But verse 22, disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. We might want to retranslate that, although they, it's, it's an excellent translation from the Greek, but I think we probably want to write, he went away sorrowful, for his great possessions had him. These children were a perfect model of discipleship here in that they were just absolutely, totally dependent. They had nothing, no ability of themselves. They had to be totally dependent on mercy and grace from others. Just like in our marriages, we have to be totally dependent upon God and His enabling grace because we do not have what it takes. You know, we, we tend to seek our refuge and our relief in what is permitted, but not seeking to be commit to what God intended. These children were a perfect example of discipleship because they had total neediness and poverty to receive whatever they would get from Christ. They didn't have wealth to maintain an autonomy and kind of keep them at a safe distance. They didn't have wealth to show up and contribute at the temple to appease their conscience but not have a transformed life. And so these, pictures, these children, Mark puts this interaction of these kids right there to illustrate both things he's trying to teach with marriage and divorce and our possessions. If our discipleship does not work out there, it's not going to work out anywhere. That's the point of what Mark is doing in setting this up. Now, the next two points we can get through rather clearly because a lot of the main traction, heavy lifting has been done. Mark 10, 32 to 45, discipleship defined as humility. Now, I said earlier, this is the third time that Jesus talks about His coming death. And, and, and every time Jesus does this, um, the disciples don't get it. And to, to really highlight this, I want to pick up the story in verse 31, and then, and then I want to jump over to James and John's conversation in verses 35 to 37, because we already read 32 to 34 when I started our, the sermon this morning. So I want to show you the, kind of the irony of this. So we're going to jump back to verse 31 of chapter 10, and then we're going to jump into verse 35. And I, just want you, I, want to, I want you to hear how it lands on your ears. Jesus says, but many, as he finishes his teaching, but many who are first will be last, and the last first. Verse 35, and James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Totally missing it. 
But this isn't the first time. Every time Jesus talks about his death, he immediately has to talk about true greatness and servanthood. Look at it right here, just to show it to you. The three times in the last three weeks where Jesus talks about his death, he immediately has to follow up with talking about humility as a key to discipleship. Friends, genuine humility is going to be the natural result of true worship. Humility is not making yourself a doorstop or, or, or uh, making yourself a pushover or stooping down to lower yourself. As a matter of fact, it's about standing at your full height, right up against some higher ideal than yourself that will truly show you the real smallness of your greatness. That's what humility actually is. Right? And our, our, our conventional thinking about it, it means to be lower, but the reality is, is to stand yourself up against something much greater than you that you can see how small your greatness actually is, which we see in, in Mark 10, 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. Notice, and you remember when we read Daniel chapter 7, right, where the Son of Man comes from in the Old Testament? And notice the comparative that Jesus says, even the Son of Man, He didn't come to be served. He came to serve. Our chapter concludes with a blind man who shows us the essence of discipleship. So with all this going on, let's pick it up in verse 46. And they came to Jericho. And as he was leaving, Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. So I love to think that these guys were part of the local church at the time, because why would he talk about the son of Timaeus unless everyone knew who Timaeus was, right? So I love when the Bible throws that in there, when it's like, you guys know this person. You know Rufus and Alexander? They're, they're this guy's son. So I just love to imagine them hearing this. So yes, the son of Timaeus was sitting by the roadside, and when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, take heart, get up, he's calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, there's that question, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. Now, Mark, I want you to see this. Mark is wrapping up this whole section on discipleship with a picture, the picture of discipleship. Bartimaeus, he recognizes Jesus as the son of David. He recognizes him to be the king. He cries out for mercy. He throws aside everything he has, and he asks for mercy and says, I want to be with you. I want to follow you. Bartimaeus is the only one doing in this chapter what no one else is doing. He's displaying faithfulness in his difficulty He's not embittered against God, against Yahweh for allowing him to be blind. That would have been a mindset that they had. You see John chapter 9, that's what they thought. Just as they thought if you did well and were righteous, you were blessed. And if you were in poverty or stricken with difficulty, you were cursed by God. He was faithful in his difficulty. 
recognizing his neediness, casting aside everything he had so he can have Jesus. He's doing what no one else in this chapter is doing. Mark says this is a picture of discipleship. Friends, you know who Bartimaeus reminds me of? You remember when we started our study back in February? The only person that understood discipleship in Mark chapter 1. It wasn't the men that, God, that Jesus had called, it was the leper. He recognized his need in his friends. The one who realizes he has nothing knows that Jesus is his everything. And did you notice, by the way, Mark, I mean, there's so much in this passage, it's hard to, to get it all, but did you notice Mark is giving us a second contrast here? Just as he contrasts the, the neediness and, and just the, 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 the need of mercy that the children have with the extravagant wealth and arrogance that the rich man actually had, he contrasts blind Bartimaeus with the disciples. We know that because he asks, Jesus asks both of them the exact same question. Did you just look at verse 36 and then verse 51? He asks both of them, what do you want me to do for you? And James and John ask for glory. Bartimaeus asks for mercy. James and John, though physically seeing, spiritually had no clue. Blind Bartimaeus physically could not see, but spiritually he knew exactly what was going on. Friends, here's the key point. Those who know their need, those who know their need, and not those who assume their superiority, it is those that God pours mercy upon like a waterfall. So the question we have to ask as we end is, do you know your need? Do you know your need for mercy in your marriage? When your sin is exposed as it will be, can you be honest enough to cry out for mercy or do you double down thinking the problem's with my spouse? Jesus came to love others and make disciples who could do the same. Do you know your need for mercy when it comes to wealth and possessions of this age? Is your heart gripped by having things, not realizing those things have you? Can you give up everything that you have to gain the only thing that you need and see that as the smartest thing you could do? Do you still believe joy is in the amassing of wealth? Or do you understand it is stewarding that for the joy and good of others because Jesus came to give to others and make disciples who would do the same? Do you know your need for God's mercy when it comes to the pride of our age of being first, being served, being considered great? Are you strong enough to be weak? Are you secure enough to be passed over? Are you confident enough, confident enough to be slighted? And then most importantly, to experience all this as a fellowship of His suffering. Can you take joy in others' glory? Or are you not satisfied until you have some of your own? Because Jesus came to serve others and make disciples who would do the same. Final thought. I hope right now you are feeling the impossibility of discipleship right now. 
Mark's point, it's pretty clear by now, is not to hold up the disciples as the models for us to follow, but to hold up Jesus as the hope for us to change. See, we've got to remember that because it is so easy to read the Bible and, and, and come to two very wrong conclusions. And the first wrong conclusion would be what I call the religious response, right? And that is, man, okay, I got this. I can make this work. I'm just, I'm just going to try harder. I'm going I'm to have more accountability. I'm going to do more Bible studies. I'll be at more church activities. I'm just going to be a good disciple, right? That, that's the religious response to this. There's the other response that, that, that you could call it maybe like an irreligious response or the realist response, and that's to say, for, forget about it. This is, this is impossible. There's no way. Have you been in the world? This, isn't, this, this Christian stuff doesn't work. And you know what? I'm just not even going to try. I'm not gonna, I can't put that guilt on me because this is not something I can do. Friends, neither one of those responsible responses are correct because they don't understand what the Bible is actually trying to do for us is to make us recognize we don't have what it takes because if we did, we wouldn't need Jesus. The reason Christ came was to change us, and that's the third response. That is the gospel response that says, I see my need. I see my need that I don't see. And the only person that's going to help me is the son of David. Jesus, have mercy on me. If there's any chance that any of this is going to make a difference, you've got to change me because I can't do it. You have got to be the one that changes me. Friends, what would be horrible is if we were a church where we could do the first response and we were successful. We would be like insufferable people to live with, right? Well, we all did it. You can do it too. And we would be a horrible church to take the second response. Nobody would be here. Or you'd be bittered because you know that there could be a change. You just can't ever get to it. We have to have the gospel response to recognize, I see my need. I'm the leper. I'm the whore. I, I'm, I'm all the insulting things that I've said about us from the Bible. That's true. But we say, I see my need. And my only salvation is Christ. So when he asks us, what do you want me to do for you? We don't ask for our personal glory. We ask for the mercy to be disciples. Let's pray. Father, we come before you, and I feel like we just got started in Mark 10. But I think the, the, you have given to us what we need. Lord, it is impossible for us to be the disciples we need to be unless you give us your spirit, unless you convict us of our sin, draw us to righteousness, enable us, turn our hearts and our affections towards you. And, and that happening church-wide, Father, make us to be a church that understands grace and truth. Help us never to be a church that, that discounts our sin because we think that's what grace is, nor to be a church that discounts people who struggle because we think that's what truth is. But Lord, that we are a church that understands both your grace and truth, that we, we never compromise the standard, but we never diminish the need for grace and help us to worship because you made that possible in Christ. Father, make us all to be disciples. Make us all to be disciples, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, 
visit us at www.ccclh.org.